Our text today from the book of Revelation will be chapter 15, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 4. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. As you know, as we've worked our way to this point in the book of Revelation, this is a difficult to interpret book. It's filled with so many images. And you'll remember that John the Apostle was being given visions by God. And one of the key approaches to interpreting the book that we've tried to emphasize throughout is to remember, as Vern Poitras says, that Revelation is better seen as a picture book rather than a puzzle book. A picture book rather than a puzzle book. We need to step back and see the forest for the trees when we look at the book of Revelation. Each one of these visions given by God to John contains key points and key principles that are applicable to the people of God throughout the ages. One of the things we've tried to emphasize throughout is that this book was written to first century persons and that it had to mean something to them. It had to contain a message that was vital to them, that was important to them, that was an encouragement to them, that was a challenge to them. And so we haven't wanted to look at the book and say that it all of the principles, say from chapter four on, only apply to a future generation of the Jewish people. But we can look at this and learn much about Christ. He is the center of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, after all. And it applies to all of Christ's people. One of the approaches that we've been taking as we've examined the book, recognizing that throughout the centuries that people of God have had different approaches, is that we've taken time on some of the most difficult passages and we've looked at the different views and then we've considered which ones are most worthy of holding to. But we recognize that some of the details of these visions we may not be able to say with 100% certainty exactly what every minute detail teaches, but we can always walk away with the big picture and understand the principles that God would have us to know in this book. And so a lot of times people are afraid to study the book because they say, I just can't understand any of it, so why should I bother with it? I hope that as we've gone through it, that that, If you've ever had that thought that that is being lessened and you're able to say, you know what, there's a lot here for me. There's a lot to understand. Well, one of the approaches that we've taken in interpreting the book, and I believe that this is an accurate way to rightly divide this book, which is part of the word of truth, is that I believe it's well divided into seven different parallel segments. These seven segments oftentimes complement one another in that they go back over some of the same details or the same events or present some of the same principles. They just present it from a different vantage point or perspective. Use the illustration of that movie called Vantage Point, which had multiple different scenes throughout the movie. And in the movie, there's a terrorist attack and it gives the perspective of multiple persons that were present or involved in that attack. So you see things from the perspective of a Secret Service agent and then things rewind and you go back to the beginning of the event and it shows you perspective from one of the onlookers and then from the terrorist leader himself and and it rewinds back to the beginning and it shows you some more and rewinds back to the beginning and shows you some more. I think Revelation is doing that. And one of the evidences 
for that is that we see over and over again at the end of these parallel segments a description of the final judgment and oftentimes a description of the saints in glory. Okay, so if you look back to one segment, for instance, here in chapters 6 and 7. And in chapter 7 in particular... In verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And here we see this glorious picture in the heavenly places. And it says in verse 14, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and served Him day and night in His temple. And it gives this glorious picture of the saints living with the Lord for all eternity. At the end of chapter 11, another one of these parallel segments when the seventh trumpet is proclaimed. We see beginning in verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. Notice past tense and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. This is a picture of the final judgment. Notice it says these things have come. Okay, then we see very clearly a recapitulation or going back to the birth of Christ at the beginning of chapter 12 when it speaks of the woman who bears the child and who, whom the dragon, which is Satan, tries to consume. And we know that Jesus was born of Mary and that Satan, working through King Herod, tried to have Jesus killed. So clearly that goes back to the birth of Christ. And then... We see, though, at the end of that segment, the end of chapter 14, again, a picture of the final judgment. Because it says here in verse 14 of chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And if you know the scriptures, you know that the final judgment is described as a harvest and that the angels are involved in the harvest. Here we see the harvest imagery. This is speaking about, again, the final judgment. So we see this over and over again at the end of these parallel segments. Well, then we get to chapter 15. And we've already seen seven seals. And then there are seven trumpets. And now there are seven bowls of wrath. And there's been a lot of discussion by theologians how these Three series of sevens all fit in one with another. But from my perspective, as you see these parallel segments that are going back and forward, back and forward, describing events, many of them that have occurred throughout human history, 
what you see is an interweaving and interlapping of these various things. Now, you do see in from the seven seals to the seven trumpets a progression in intensity. And then you see that progression continue with these seven bowls because it says the wrath of God is complete here. So as well as describing things from a different vantage point, I think it's also looking at different intensities of judgments that God brings upon the world. And I've described it this way. If you were to take a map and look at all the tornadoes that have hit the United States of America in the past, say, 30 or 40 years and examine those and say, okay, now let's examine F2 tornadoes and hit the map. Okay, now let's go back and let's examine F3 tornadoes. Okay, now let's hit the F4 and the F5 tornadoes. You see, there are different levels of intensity. Much of the same thing is taking place when those tornadoes hit. There's judgment, there's destruction, there's all of these things, but there are different intensities of these judgments. I think in many ways that's what we see here in the book of Revelation. But this segment in 15 and 16 I think describes the fullest wrath of God being poured out and much of this wrath is reserved for the final judgment which is to take place. God has poured out wrath throughout human history. I mean, just read the Old Testament and his judgment upon the nations, upon Egypt, upon Babylon, upon Assyria, God continues to pour out wrath upon the nations. But all of these days of wrath, days of the Lord, point to the great day of the Lord, which is to come. When Christ sets foot upon this earth and the scriptures say he will come in flaming fire. Second Thessalonians chapter one, taking vengeance. Okay. So all the smaller days of the Lord and the book of Joel has as a theme the day of the Lord. All of these lesser days of the Lord when God visited judgment all point us toward and we should be preparing for the great day of the Lord so that we are not found sleeping during that day. Well, let's examine these few verses with that introduction and let's look at this introduction, this interlude, which is given. With the seals and the trumpets, there was an interlude before the judgments began to flow. And here we have such an interlude. We have the introduction. Then I saw in verse 1, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And then we see this interlude before these bowls of wrath are being poured out. And just so you know, as we consider this and move forward. The word wrath, children, means a fierce, burning anger. Okay? Wrath isn't, oh, I'm a little bit upset. Wrath is, I am boiling. I am furious. I am fuming. I am incensed. Wrath is a fierce, consuming anger. And as we've already looked at, the scriptures say literally hundreds of times that God is wrathful against sin and against sinners. You don't find anywhere in Scripture the idea that God completely separates in his mind the sin from the sinner. Okay? The idea, well, God completely and totally, in the way we think of love, loves the sinner, but he just hates the sin. No, because then he would never send any sinners to hell. <laughs> okay? Yes, there's a general love of God toward all people in, in his benevolence. He has a general goodwill and he sends forth the gospel. And Christ came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But at the same time, the scriptures say over and over again, and we'll examine some of this again tonight, such as in Romans chapter one, it says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It says in Ephesians chapter two, we who are saved were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. It says 
in Psalms 5 and in Psalms 7 that God is both hates the workers of iniquity and is angry with the unrighteous every single day. What does that mean? Does that mean that God's a monster? Does it mean he's sadistic, that he loves to torture his creatures? No, but it means that God loves justice. He loves righteousness. He loves holiness. And he will rightly judge those who spit in the face of his son and refuse to bow to Jesus and those who persecute the innocent and persecute his people. You see, God is a wrathful God because of his great love. The more that you love justice and you love innocent people and the more that you love truth and righteousness, the more you will be upset and even angry when you see injustice done. And there's a sense in which even we created in the image of God can have a righteous anger. The scriptures say, be angry, but do not sin. What does that mean? We can be righteously angry. We just have to make sure that we do not sin in our anger. But we are not God, so we are not called to be angry every day because it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. But see, God can be angry as it says in the Psalms, every single day, because I don't know about you, but I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omniscient. I'm not, I'll say, independent, existing in and of myself, not dependent on anyone or anything. God is all of these things. And so he can be righteously indignant. And he can pour out wrath and he will always judge righteously. He will never, ever judge unrighteously because he knows everything. He knows everything. All the ins and the outs. People go on trial and they sit before a jury and there is examination and cross-examination and all of this going on and people are trying to figure out, did they do it? Why did they do it? All these things, God knows. He knows all of it. He knows the motives of our heart. He knows our very thoughts. He knows everything. The scriptures say we stand naked and open before him with whom we have to do. But there's a glorious truth, and we're going to see it in our text today, that if you are a child of God covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are not appointed to face the wrath of God. And this is the glorious song of the saints. And this is our song that we do not have to face God's wrath if we have Jesus' righteousness. So let's consider that. Verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, we know, based on what we've already seen in the book of Revelation, that this is a vision of heaven. The fact that they're standing on a sea which is like glass. In Revelation, in chapter 4, that glorious throne room scene, it says, around the throne of God, there was a sea like glass. So this is a vision of the heavenly throne room. And this image, though, and remember, Revelation mixes its metaphors, okay? You have Jesus called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and then John looks, and what does he see? Does he see a lion at that point? No, he sees a lamb. Revelation mixes its metaphors. So in this Metaphor, and remember, this is a vision that is being given to, to John, and these things represent spiritual realities. This sea of glass is also mingled with fire. Now, what do these represent? The sea and the fact that it's a sea like glass, so that would indicate that it's that it's smooth and that it is mingled with fire. Well, you remember we've looked at in the past 
that the sea, in particular to the Jewish people, and it's spoken of in passages such as in the book of Isaiah, the sea represented turmoil and chaos to the Jews. The Jews were not a seafaring people. Okay? Just remember the disciples in the boat, and Jesus is sleeping, and they're all like, we're going to die! They weren't exactly salty sea dogs. All right? They weren't a seafaring people, as it's been said, like the Brits who have salt water in their veins. Not so the Jews. So the sea was a place of turmoil. It was a place of danger. It was a frightening place. And it also came to represent the nations, and in particular, the heathen nations. But notice here, they're standing on this sea, and it's like glass. And where are they at in heaven? What does this indicate? It indicates a victory, a triumph for these people. They're on something like a sea, which would have been fearful to them, which would have been chaotic, but yet it's like glass. And so there they stand in tranquility. There they stand peacefully. There they stand without fear. And there they stand in triumph. And then notice it says it's mingled with fire. What does fire so often represent in the scriptures? Both judgment and purification. Remember John the Baptist, and he talked about if you do not bear fruits worthy of repentance, every tree that does not do so will be chopped down and will be what? Cast into the fire. So here are the triumphant saints of God who have endured the wrath of the beast and his minions and have not denied Christ, but have been faithful, some of them even unto death. And there they stand in heaven, both saved from facing any longer the wrath of the devil and his minions, but also there they stand in heaven, spared the wrath of God. And as God's judgments pour forth upon the earth, they are not recipients of that wrath of God in judgment. They stand on a smooth foundation, triumphant, triumphant. You remember, as we've looked at the book of Revelation, there, there are many pairs of twos. It's in some ways a tale of two cities. There's Jerusalem, Zion, the heavenly city, and then there's Babylon. There's a tale, if you will, of the two creatures. You have the dragon who is Satan and you have the lamb, the lamb of God. And as you look at these two, it is clear from the book of Revelation that those who take the mark of the beast and his image and his name or his number and worship him, because all those who take the mark worship him, as we've already covered this. I'm not going to turn us back to all these passages. We've spent a lot of time looking at all of this. But it says that those who are the beasts and are marked as his will face the wrath of the lamb. But those who are the lambs face the wrath of the beast. And we've asked the question many times, whose wrath would you rather face? Would you rather have Satan angry at you or God angry at you? That one's a no-brainer when you recognize that Satan is vanquished. And although he yet roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he knows, chapter 12, that he has but a short time. Because Christ has triumphed. The seed of the woman has crushed his head. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ is the victor. And all those who are united in Christ will share in the victory that Christ has secured. Right? So whose side do you want to be on? You see, we are called every single day to make a choice. Whom will I serve? Will I serve Christ today? Or will I serve his arch enemy, Satan, today? We're faced with a choice every day. Whom will I serve? These are those who, by the grace of God, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, were faithful unto him 
in life and in death, and now stand triumphant, not facing the wrath of God. And they can proclaim that God's works are good. In all of his works, he is marvelous and the Lord God almighty. Now, I want us to consider for just a moment from the scriptures this great and glorious teaching about Christ and how he has upon the cross through his work of, and we'll look at this word, propitiation, born the wrath of God, the punishment against sin that we deserve so we don't have to face the wrath of God. This is glorious truth from the scriptures. Dealing with the subject of what theologians have called, and it's a biblical word, the atonement. The atonement. The word atonement means at one meant. It means to be for something to be made one. We are made whole through the work of Christ. Our sins are covered through the work of Christ. And the word propitiation means an appeasement of wrath. And we'll unpack that all in just a moment. I want to read for just a moment and then we'll look at several scriptures here. From an article, again, the site gotquestions.org. I like this site. It puts things in some very simple and compact you know, uh, terms. And it's an easy one to remember, right? Like I said, remember the old commercials, Got Milk? Well, just think Got Questions. And it's a good resource if you have questions about the Lord, about the scriptures, because they present oftentimes several different views. And as I've said before, I agree with about 95 percent of the conclusions, so it must be good. Right. (laughs) But anyway. There have been throughout history different theories of the atonement. These theories seek to answer the question, how is it? And what was accomplished by Christ that has made us right with God? How do we get right with God? Some of the theories of the atonement that that exist are absolute heresy. And if they weren't considered a theory of the atonement, they might give us one aspect of what Jesus accomplished, but they deny certain essential truths. One such theory is the example theory of the atonement. The example theory of the atonement says that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was merely to give us an example of sacrificial love. But you see, that's heresy because the scriptures say that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was redemption. That Jesus died on the cross to save his people. He didn't just give us an example, but he did give us an example. The book of Peter First Peter tells us that plainly, that Jesus died giving us an example. So he did give us an example of love and laying down one's life. And what did he say? Greater love hath no man than this, but that he laid down his life for his brethren. So he gave us a perfect example, but he did much more than just give us an example. He objectively accomplished redemption, which is then applied in the lives of believers when God births us again, John chapter 3, we're born again, and that work of redemption is applied to our hearts and lives, and we bear the fruit of faith in our lives and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Okay, so there are some theories out there that are, that are heresy. The theory that I think best explains from the scriptures what took place in redemption, in the atonement, is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. This from gotquestions.org. What is the doctrine of penal substitution? Answer. In the simplest possible terms, the biblical doctrine of penal substitution holds that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross takes the place of the punishment we ought to suffer for our sins. As a result, God's justice is satisfied and those who accept Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God. The word penal means related to punishment for offenses. You know, we talk about the penal system. 
We mean the system that punishes lawbreakers for offenses. Okay, so think of penalty, think of law. It's related to punishment for offenses, they say. And substitution means the act of a person, in this context, the act of a person taking the place of another. So what do the scriptures teach? That Jesus bore the legal punishment from God that we deserve because of our sins. And he did that by substituting himself and bearing the wrath of God that we deserve to bear. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the anger, the wrath of God, the father against sin for all those who will place their faith in him. Okay. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Look at first Peter chapter two and verse twenty four. First Peter two and verse twenty four. Any theory of the atonement, anything seeking to describe what Christ accomplished on the cross that does not see Jesus as being the substitute for us, as the one who took our Punishment upon himself, if we put faith in him, falls well short of the clear biblical teaching. Okay? Jesus took our place on that cross if we have faith in him. First Peter chapter 2. Let's begin with verse 21. It says, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. I've referenced this. That you should follow his steps who committed no sin. Did Jesus have any sin for which he deserved to be punished? None whatsoever. He was impeccable. All right. That means sinless, perfect, righteous, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now notice this in verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For we, for you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might live for righteousness. Second Thessalonians or Second Corinthians five twenty one says that therefore he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see the substitution. The Bible also uh, uses accounting terms. So we're talking about legal terms and that Jesus bore our punishment. But there's an accounting term, imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to ours, which means to count something as belonging to someone else. Okay. If you go and check your bank account. And you know your account balance, whatever it is and whatever small figures it's in. And you show up one day and you say to the teller, hey, could you write my account balance on my receipt? Sure. And she writes it down and you look at it and it's seven or eight figures. You're like, where did that come from? Okay. Let's say you let's say you've got a million, two million, three million dollars in your account that you didn't put there. You're going to be like, okay, somebody made a mistake. But then what if you find out that there was a generous millionaire who happened to see one day you do an act of kindness for somebody else or something like that. And they're like, okay, I'm going to put this money in this guy's account. You find out it's not a mistake. That money is really yours. 
Now, did you work and get paid wages or make an investment and get a return on your investment that paid for or that put that money in your account? No. But is that yours? Is it truly counted as yours? Yes. Okay. The Bible speaks of Christ's righteousness being counted as ours. It's imputed to us for righteousness, the scriptures say in the book of Romans. What that means is that God counts Jesus' perfect obedience both in his life and perfectly keeping every commandment and in his death, satisfying the wrath of God being our substitute. God counts that as ours when he looks at us. So we call that double imputation. Double imputation from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sins were reckoned as his. Did he, did he commit sin? No, but our sins were placed on him. So our sins were counted as his. But then it says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did we do his righteousness? Are you always a good little girl and good little boy? Have you always only ever done everything perfectly in your thoughts and your deeds all the way down the line from the second you were conceived in the womb, always been perfect? No. What did the scriptures say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means you and me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we get Jesus righteousness. Because we're counted as righteous through the work that Christ has done. What a deal. (laughs) Can we not praise God for that? Do you know what we deserve? What do the scriptures say we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve for God to pour out his fiercest anger and judgment upon us. Why? Because every one of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And what, are the, what is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. We deserve that, but what do we get if God has done a glorious work in our heart, put his spirit within us, birthed us again, drawn us to himself, and granted us ability, and we now have faith in him, what do we get? We get Jesus' righteousness counted as ours. You see, what glory is this? That we are not recipients of the wrath of God. Peter here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. What a glorious passage, is it not? This speaks about Christ bearing our iniquities. It speaks about Christ, it says, by his stripes we are healed. It says there that it pleased God to bruise him. What does that mean? That means that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And is this a picture of divine child abuse? Far be it. Far from it. You know, some hate this doctrine. They say, well, that just makes out God the father is an angry God and he's punishing his son who didn't deserve to be punished. But the reality is this. Jesus wanted to bear this penalty. This was noble. This was heroic. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that we could be saved. And this, folks, is the only way that any of us could be saved because we had to have a perfect substitute. Anyone who sins gets the wages of sin, that is death, unless they're given the gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who didn't sin. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus did not come to save angels, but he came to save the seed of Abraham. He took on what form? The form of angels? No, he took on our form when he came to earth so that he could be our substitute. And it was the only way. There was no other way. God had to become a man. And Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, became a man, the God-man. He didn't stop being God, He didn't, st- but he became man and took upon him a human nature, yet without sin. And he perfectly obeyed the law that we had broken. He took our punishment upon himself. 
And this was his desire. He longed to do this. You hear him throughout the scriptures, right? He had come to do the will of his father. It was his life to do the will of his father. He lived to glorify his father. And his father in turn has glorified him. And he's been given, Philippians chapter 2, the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. Christ has been exalted. So, this theory of penal substitution regarding the atonement. Jesus bore the penalty that we deserve when he was on the cross. He was our substitute. And in return, God counts his righteousness as being ours. His victory is credited to those of us who are united in him in a right relationship with God. Whose side do you want to be on? <laughs> I, want to, I want to be with Jesus. How about you? But yet the, the reality is that there are many who do not believe and who do not bow. There are many who are not represented by Christ and those will face the wrath of God. Look at Romans chapter 5. What a glorious passage, Romans chapter 5. In the first three books of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because it's the word of God, sets out to show that everyone is condemned. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you were given the law. It doesn't matter if you never have the law. All are condemned. You've got to know the bad news before you'll appreciate the good news. I tell the guys in the jail this all the time. I'm giving you the bad news right now. But if you don't grasp the bad news, you're not going to appreciate the good news. It's kind of like, what if, what if somebody's coming up to you and saying, I've got the cure for your fatal disease, and you don't know that you have a fatal d- disease. You're like, well, well, thanks, I guess. I mean, I appreciate the thought, but I'm not sick. So <laughs> you don't appreciate it. But if you've got a fatal disease and somebody comes up to you and says, I have the cure and I'm going to give it to you free of cost. Then you're like, okay, and I know the bad news. I'm sick, and there's good news right there, right? We have to know the bad news that we face God's wrath to appreciate what Christ did to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, look at Romans chapter 5. The good news has been proclaimed, and it says in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, that's talking about any type of spiritual strength, in due time Christ died for The really good people out there. Is that what it says? No, the apostle has already outlined there is no one good out there. There are none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek after God. They've all turned astray. Poison of asps is under their lips. Did Jesus come to die for good people? Absolutely not, because there is none righteous None of us good in the eyes of God. All of us condemned. He died for the ungodly. It says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. It takes a lot to muster up courage to die for really good people. But is somebody going to die for a Hitler? I mean, would you be like, there's Hitler, he's about to get hit by... He's about to get blown up by a grenade. I'm going to lay down my life so I can save Hitler. It 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Now, what if, what if it's a what if it's a good man? What if it's one of your comrades in arms, somebody that you've been through fire and water with? You'd be like, yeah, you know what? I think I would lay down my life to save them. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, any nonsense about we we've got to we've got to take all the first steps. We've got to go towards God and then God will respond to us. The scriptures all put it from the perspective of we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Right. What was our part in this whole equation? We're sinning against God, rebelling against God, loving things that God hates. And then God reaches out and mercifully sends his son to die for us. And he mercifully draws us to himself and he mercifully puts a new heart within us and takes the heart of stone out of us. And puts in a heart of flesh. He mercifully gives us his spirit. And seals us with the Holy Spirit. And unites us in Christ. And makes us heirs and joint heirs with Christ. What did we sing this morning? To me be the glory. Great things I have done. You see I was so smart. I put my faith in Jesus. And so I deserve it. Is that what we have sung this morning? What did we sing? To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. You see? Where is our boasting? May it be like the Apostle Paul in the cross of Christ. Right? I cannot boast in and of myself. All of our righteousness outside of Christ are filthy rags. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God, but God in his great mercy. Ephesians chapter two. I mean, you just go through it. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, has he made alive? And then it says, by grace, we're saved through faith that not of ourselves but this dead condition and everything else outlining our dire plight, dead in any way toward God and right relationship with him. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, he gets all the glory. And one of the evidences of someone who has never been impacted by the power of God and had a changed heart is that they will take glory in themselves. And that they will boast in what they have done in relationship toward God. Anyone who does such has not been humbled. And you know what God says? I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. You see, those who are proud will be crushed under the wrath of God. It is only the humble who have had the heart of stone removed from them. Where are you today? Where are you today in regards to this? Do you glory in what Christ has done? Are you placing all of your hope, your trust, your love in what Jesus has done and walking in a right relationship with him, knowing that he lives and that you're united in him and that you have a relationship with him and that you will not face wrath. Because what happens to those who are not in right relationship with him? Verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? From wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We need to be saved from the wrath of God, folks. 
Here is the great plight of humankind. Our sins have separated us from a righteous and holy God who is the just judge of all the universe. We have a death sentence in the divine court. And the judge is furious against us for our wickedness. And he will pour out his wrath upon us and we will finally be cast into the lake of fire unless unless we bow to his son Jesus and put our faith in Jesus and love Jesus and trust in Jesus and walk with Jesus and obey Jesus as a fruit, not saving us. We're not saved by our works. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the scriptures say, if you say you walk in the light, but you're living in darkness, practicing deeds of darkness, that you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Okay? That's the fruit. The root is the work that Christ has accomplished. The fruit is us living out love toward God and toward our neighbors. Well, this doctrine of penal substitution, Jesus bore the punishment that we deserve. He was our substitute. And because of God's great love, we are counted as righteous in Christ. The Apostle Paul could then say in Philippians chapter 3 that he did not want to be found having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, you see. He didn't want the righteousness of the law. Why? Because we cannot attain to perfect righteousness. We can't keep the law perfectly. We need the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. And faith in Him alone. So these saints stand there pictured upon a sea of glass mingled with fire. And they are those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. How have they obtained that victory? If you look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. You see, that's the fruit of the work that God does in the heart is that we are willing to lay down our lives, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus, right? That's the fruit. That's the fruit. They did not love their lives even unto death. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. I don't have time to break down every one of these attributes of God and his glorious works. We could spend months looking at each one of these from the word. But I want you to see this glorious vision. What's being, what's being done here? These are saints in heaven and they're worshiping God. Revelation gives us glimpses of perfect worship. Because the saints in heaven are no longer sinning against God. So their worship is righteous. It is good. And it is therefore a pattern for us. What did Jesus say in what we call the Lord's Prayer? It's Better termed, I think, the model prayer. We are to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So should we not pattern our worship after this picture of heavenly worship? What do you see 
as the big picture in this scene of worship. Here's something that I see. God. And his glory and his works. Adoring God for who he is and what he has done. God glorifying worship is not primarily man-centered. It is God-centered. Notice the objectivity of these statements. And there's a place for both the objective and the subjective. Okay, let's make a little application from this. Think about this for a moment. If we go back to the throne room scene in chapter 4 and 5, we see there in chapter 5, we see saints, redeemed saints, and they're proclaiming, you have saved us by your blood. So there's a somewhat subjective sense there in that it's people looking at what God has done for them, what Christ has done for them. So is it appropriate in our worship to sing songs, for instance, that praise God for what he has done for us? Yes, it is. Absolutely so. But think, think with me for just a moment. Outside of certain circles, I would propose that the primary number of Christian contemporary songs that are written are written from the subjective perspective. If you were just to turn on Christian radio and listen to the music that is played continuously, you're going to hear 75%, 80%, maybe even more than that songs that are singing about what God has done for you. And then how many songs are there that are just going to objectively look at God and who he is and his character and his nature and his attributes and his works and just say, praise him for who he is. For who he is. You're not going to hear as many. Now, there are some, and I'm very thankful for those. There, there are folks like Chris Tomlin who has written many objective, God-centered, God-glorifying hymns. The Gettys. Keith and Christian Getty have written many songs like that as well in contemporary Christian music. One of the reasons that I really thoroughly enjoy the Trinity hymnal is because there are many deep, objective hymns here that sing about the glories and the attributes of God. And when you go to some of the more modern hymns that are written and in some of the Baptist hymnals, for instance, the majority of those are going to be singing about how I feel about God or what God has done for me. Again, it's both and. I'm not trying to say one is wrong and the other is right. I'm just saying we see both in the scriptures. But notice this, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. You notice in this song, there's not a single I. There's not a single I in this one. Many of the songs that are sung in churches, many of the songs that are sung in contemporary Christian music, Christian music are all about I. And it's all the focus of I. Again, those aren't wrong. Read the Psalms. Those aren't wrong. But we've got both. And we need to focus on both. We need to go deep in understanding who God is and worshiping and praising God for who he is. He deserves all glory and honor, does he not? Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Notice the God-centeredness of this. Glorify your name, O God. The saints are focused on exalting the name of God, on lifting his name on high. The saints are focused 
not on exalting themselves and patting themselves on the back. Like my dad says, stop trying to pat yourself on the back, just sprain an elbow. <laughs> right? <laughs> we are focused on God because we are enraptured with him and we know we are nothing and even less than nothing without him. And it is all to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Now, think about this last point of application and we're finished. That doesn't mean stop paying attention. It just means have some hope. Long-winded preacher boy's about done. Okay? What are they praising God for here? This is a prelude to the bowls of wrath being poured out. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Notice it says then, your judgments have been manifested. What are they praising God for here? They're praising him for his justice. They're praising him for the judgments that he righteously pours out. They're praising him for who he is and what he is even about to accomplish in pouring out absolute wrath upon his enemies. Here's the reality. If you want to worship God on earth as it's done in heaven. You need to be thankful for the justice of God. You need to not. Apologize for God. You need to not look at the scriptures and the judgments that God has brought down throughout the ages and be ashamed of God or apologetic to other people when they bring up questions like God wiping out the Canaanites. The reality is this. The saints will say, God, you are righteous. Your works are marvelous and good. You always do justly. And even if I don't understand at the time your justice, I will not, I will not be ashamed of you. And I will not deny this essential aspect of who you are and that you are righteous and you are just. And as a matter of fact, the scriptures teach that the, the very thought of Christ coming and judging the enemies of God ought to be a comfort to the people of God who are facing injustice. Here's the reality, folks, when ISIS takes up the sword and they video Christians as they slice off their heads and they hold their heads up. The reality is this. Yes, at this point in time, we pray, Lord, save their souls. But there is a day coming when all those who do not bow to Jesus and have committed such actions will be judged by God. And it is not wrong for us to long for that day when justice will be proclaimed. Otherwise, these saints in heaven are sinning against God in his very presence. Otherwise, the martyrs could we see under the very throne of God and say, Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? Otherwise, they are sinning against God. But yet again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when it says that Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance, that passage is written to saints who are suffering persecution as a word of comfort and encouragement. Hold on, hold on. God will make everything right. He will punish those who are tormenting and afflicting you. Have hope because God is just. God is just. One of the great hymns of the past that we have sung before says, Rejoice in glorious hope. Your Lord and judge will come.
the only people who rejoice that the judge is coming are those who are no who know that they are just in the eyes of the judge and who know that the judge is coming to condemn those who oppress the righteous but that is us if we have the righteousness of Christ and as a matter of fact when they sing it says here they sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb the song of Moses was penned after the people of Israel were freed by God from oppression to Egypt and God opened up the waters of the Red Sea and crushed the waters down upon the enemies of the people of God. And Moses proclaims, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and all the congregation sings, Just and right are your ways, O God. And in Deuteronomy 32, it says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Can you echo that today? Can you rejoice in the justice of God as these saints in heaven? I pray so. To God be the glory. Father, we thank you for your justice, for your righteousness, that you will never condemn the righteous, those who have the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And so we have hope because of Christ but that you will judge rightly, for shall not the judge of all the earth do right. You will judge justly. And we are not to apologize for you and your justice. We are to see this as a result of your love. You love holiness, you love righteousness, you're pure, the thrice holy God, and we worship you today. We ask, Father, that you'll bless the meal that we partake of. Bless us as we partake of it. Encourage us with who you are and your love toward us today. And may we evermore grow deeper in love with you and walk more closely in fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Dan.